welcome back to a series that we are calling The Way of Jesus. Uh, this series is designed to answer the question, what is Christianity? And to find our answer, we are looking at a teaching that Jesus himself gave during his time here that answers that question specifically and exhaustively. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be looking at a section of that sermon recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 20, which says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lamp stand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. <clears throat> Last week, uh, we began this, this half of the series that's focused on the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at the introduction of Jesus' sermon as recorded in Luke's gospel and really the focal point of Jesus' introduction, he's just explaining that the way of life that we refer to as Christianity, it is built on a value system that is completely at odds with the value system of the world. The two have literally nothing in common. And that was basically the entire, I mean, if you got nothing else from last week's teaching, and if you didn't listen to it, I can summarize the whole thing right here. It's that Christianity and the world have nothing in common. It's different. Christianity is different from the world. And that's something that I think most people, generally speaking, understand, at least in theory. But with, with the words that we're looking at from Jesus today, he's explaining something that, that all people, both Christians and non-Christians, tend to have a far greater difficulty grasping and, and really understanding, which is that Christianity is not just distinct from the world, it's also utterly distinct from this thing called religion. If you fast forward to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in both Luke and Matthew's Gospel accounts, Jesus concludes his sermon by offering you three metaphors. And they're all driving home the same idea, but he offers three different metaphors just to make sure we don't miss what he's trying to say. First off, he says there's two paths. One leads to life and one leads to destruction. Then he says there are two trees. One produces good fruit, the other produces poison. And finally, he says there are two houses. One's built on the rock. One's built on the sand. And what Jesus is doing, commentators agree, is he's explaining that there are these two ways of life that on the surface, they look remarkably similar. But one of these ways destroys its travelers, poisons its partakers, and collapses on its residents. And so the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, choose and make sure you choose wisely. Now, I think the most important question to ask there, if I, if I could just be logical for a moment here, is okay, we better understand the two ways of life that Jesus is comparing and contrasting. And I think most people 
in Jesus' day, and I think it's safe to say even most people today would assume that Jesus is talking about one way of life in which you live a good life by keeping the law, or on the other hand, you live a bad life in which you break the law. The problem with that, commentators have pointed out, is that those would not be two paths, two trees, or two houses that look anything alike. And if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice Jesus does not compare the good guys who keep God's law and the bad guys who break God's law. Instead, over and over again, he says things like this. He says, he doesn't say, bad people don't pray, but my people will pray. Instead, he says, most people pray like this, but I want you to pray differently than that. He doesn't say, bad people don't give to the poor, but my people will give to the poor. He says, people give to the poor this way, but I want you to give to the poor in a different way. And, and, and so here's the kind of the alarming idea behind the Sermon on the Mount when you really read through it and grasp what Jesus is teaching. All through it, he is comparing and contrasting these two different ways to live, but it's not that one is obviously good and obviously bad. They're both good and that both groups of people are at least on the surface obeying God's law. But the point in Jesus' three metaphors is that one of those ways of life is not what it appears to be, and it does not lead to what you think it'll lead to. And all through it, Jesus is comparing Christianity to religion. And you see it in the verses we're looking at today. I don't know if you've ever read this verse this way, but let me read verse 19 again. Jesus says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I just want to draw your attention. Notice in verse 19, Jesus is talking about two groups of people who are both in the kingdom of heaven. They both made it. Some of them are doing great. Some of them are just barely in there by the skin of their teeth, but they're both in. But then immediately after that, in verse 20, listen to what Jesus says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, with that phrase, to me, this has got to be one of the most offensive things Jesus said during his time here. Because what he's saying, in no uncertain terms, is that the most religiously devoted people in his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of God's people, Jesus says they haven't even entered into the kingdom at all. And what that means, at the very least, is that this way of life that Jesus is inviting people to follow him into that we call Christianity, it is vastly superior and it is utterly distinct from what I'm just going to call a merely religious way of life. So we should never try to reduce the way of Jesus to this lifestyle in which we're just doing a lot of good things and working as hard as we can to observe God's law. We should never, even in our minds, reduce the way of Jesus to just going to church on Sunday or reading our Bible or praying or serving the community or giving to the poor. Because according to Jesus, you can live a, mark, you can live a life that is marked and defined by those things and still be on a path that leads to destruction, a tree that produces poison, and a house that's getting ready to collapse. And if that sounds unsettling to you, I think it should, because I think that's exactly what Jesus' point is. And so what he's saying here, specifically in verse 20, which we're basically going to spend all of our time just unpacking this one verse, Jesus is saying, unless you have something that, that for our intents and purposes uh, this morning, I'm going to call a gospel goodness, 
something only a relationship with Jesus can produce, what Jesus is saying is that unless you have a gospel goodness that is vastly superior to mere religious righteousness, you will not make it into the kingdom of heaven. And and, and this morning, I want to talk about how gospel goodness is superior to mere religious righteousness in three ways. First off, that it's brighter. Secondly, that it's deeper. Thirdly, that it's sweeter. Just one more point before we actually get into it this morning. Um, For those asking why, you know, it's such a cliche that, you know, Christianity is not a religion. I think that was like a that, I think that phrase really went viral, not that we called it back, back then, like the early 90s. Everybody remember the WWJD bracelets? Yeah, oh yeah, all right, there it is. Back to our roots. And, uh, you know, everybody's going to acquire the fire and creation, all that kind of stuff. And, and back then it just seemed like this, this it, it was almost a cliche that, that got pretty, I, I guess it was cool at one point, but like every other cliche, it just became nauseating. Christianity is not, re- not a religion. And I just want to say, as nauseating as that might sound, it's true. The reason that that became a cliche is because we got that idea from the Bible and more specifically from Jesus himself. So the reason that we're talking about this on Sunday morning is because Jesus thought it was worth talking about. If he thought it was worth talking about, that's good enough for me. We're going to spend some time talking about it. But beyond that, just two groups of people. If you're listening to this and you were already a follower of Jesus, my hope for this teaching is that it would be used in your life as a diagnostic tool to get you to really be honest about to what degree you are living a merely religious life rather than the Christian life. If you're here today and you're, you're not really sure if you're a Christian or you're kind of in that mode where, where, where you're, you're trying to get information to figure out, do I really want to commit my life to that like I know some of you are, if nothing else... I hope by the time uh, we're done this morning, you would at least see that Christianity and religion are two completely different ways of life because they they produce two wildly different things. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Gospel goodness, which only Jesus can produce, versus religious righteousness. Gospel goodness is brighter, it's deeper, and sweeter. With that, let's get moving. Number one, gospel goodness is brighter than religious righteousness. We see this idea in in verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, admittedly, it's a little difficult to get at what Jesus is, is uh, talking about here because he, he, he mixes metaphors. He talks about salt, and then he talks about light. But what he's doing here, again, he's comparing two groups of people that, at least on the surface, they both look similar. The difference, however, is one of them is useful to those around them, and the other one is not. So, for instance, Jesus is talking about two groups of people here who are both salt. One of them is actually salty. The other one has lost its taste, or literally it's contaminated, and is therefore completely useless. It is incapable of fulfilling the purpose that salt was designed for. And along those same lines, he says you have two groups of people. Both of them are providing light, but one's doing so under a basket, which is literally not useful to anybody, whereas one of them is providing light on a lampstand, in other words, in a way that is useful to all of the members of the household. So from this, what we're seeing here is that the first distinction between gospel goodness and mere religious righteousness is going to be found in its relationship to the world. When we say that that gospel goodness is brighter, what we mean is that gospel goodness 
and the people that possess it are both attracted to and attractive to the world around them, specifically to people who are not like them, have arrived at different conclusions that they have, and disagree with them. Religious people, however, according to Jesus, are exactly the opposite. They are put off by and they are off-putting toward people who are not like them. So let me walk through these two ideas, that they're both attracted and they are attractive. First off, people with gospel goodness are attracted to the world. Verse 13, Jesus uses this famous metaphor you probably heard before, that his followers are to be the salt of the earth. Pretty much every commentator agrees on what Jesus means there. In Jesus' day, the primary function of salt was not a seasoning, it was a preservative. Literally, in the ancient world, wars were fought over salt because of how valuable it was as a preservative. Meat would would, uh, decompose and decay and fall apart and go bad unless salt got in there. So what Jesus is getting at here is that, you know, to be the salt of the earth... Jesus is saying that people with gospel goodness, people who are legitimately his followers and have been transformed by him, they're going to move toward the decay. When they see, see things falling apart, rather than backing away, they get involved. People with gospel goodness, when they see individuals or, or marriages or families or neighborhoods or cities or whatever it is falling apart, they're going to lean in to preserve what would otherwise fall apart. Historically speaking, this is one of, the, one of the first things that the first followers of Jesus were known for. Uh, maybe you've heard this before, but in, in the Roman Empire, there were a number of plagues that swept across the ancient world. One of them was in, in the year 165, under the reign of, of one of the most famous Roman emperors, you probably heard of him, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, it was a plague that decimated anywhere from one quarter to one third of the population of the Roman Empire. Uh, Based on the way that the symptoms are described, we think it was probably smallpox. And because of how deadly it was, the first thing that people did is they fled the cities for the countryside. All they knew is where people congregated, the death toll was the highest, so they got out of the cities. One of the first ways that Christians introduced themselves to the world, showed people who they were and how different they were, was found in the fact that they stayed behind in the cities to care for the sick and for the dying and to bury the dead with dignity. That was shocking in the Roman Empire because, as you might be aware, Rome was was a shame and honor culture, like so many ancient cultures were. So they did not value things like compassion and mercy and pity. But these followers of Jesus that kind of came out of nowhere, they did value those things and they embodied those things. And the reason they did was because they understood that they worshiped a God who moved toward them and got involved in their lives when they were, spiritually speaking, sick and dying and dead. And and Jesus is saying that's one of the first things that his followers would be known for. Conversely, he says religious people here are exactly the opposite. The, The image Jesus gives us, he says they're under a basket or a bowl, meaning people who are merely religious have no desire to move toward people who are not like them. They want to congregate only with people who think like them, speak like them, look like them, live like them. So first off, people with gospel goodness are attracted to the world, but secondly, and I think this is even more forgotten in the culture, you know, this cultural moment we're in, according to Jesus' words, uh, his followers should also be attractive to the world around them. Meaning followers of Jesus, according to Jesus himself, his followers should be attractive to the watching world, specifically in the eyes of people who, who don't live like them and don't agree with them and even are challenged by their worldviews. We know this because of what Jesus says in verse 16. 
Maybe you've heard this before. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, you read that verse at face value, and what it looks like, it, it looks like it's getting across this idea that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, just obey the rules that God has, has given to people, and, and, and eventually, people are going to see your life, and they're going to see that things are generally working out better for you than them, and that's going to kind of put them onto the idea that, hey, maybe the Christians have something figured out. I want to be real clear. That's great advice, and Christians certainly should do that. That's just not what Jesus is saying here. And it's verses like this that, that kind of demonstrate why the English language at least sometimes fails us when it comes to Scripture. In the, in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, there's two words, two Greek words, that can both be translated good in English. One of them is the word agathos, which means morally, morally good as opposed to morally evil. That's not the word Jesus uses here. The word Jesus uses in verse 16 is the word kalos. It means beautiful and attractive as opposed to ugly. So if you were to literally translate verse 16, what Jesus is saying is in the same way, let your light shine before men so that may, they may see your beautiful and attractive life and give glory to your Father in heaven. You think through that command for any length of time and you realize it would have been, it would have been a lot easier if Jesus had just said, all right, here's the rules, abide by them. The reason, however, and I'm willing to bet that this is, what I'm about to say is something a number of you have personally experienced. The reason Jesus didn't do that is because Jesus knew something that, that perhaps we all know, which is that it is entirely possible to live an incredibly moral life and be an incredibly ugly person. And if you want examples of that, Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel accounts are littered with example after example of religious leaders who live, I mean, with a strictness and a sobriety that you and I could only hope to aspire to, and yet, despite the fact that they are so morally upright that they can't be rightly accused of breaking any obvious law, the gospel writers over and over again show them to be people that in turn, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, full of death on the inside, racked with things like, like bitterness and envy and selfish ambition and resentment and pettiness and condescension and feelings of superiority, the kinds of people, they'd be the last people on the planet that you ran to if your life was coming apart at the seams. And so the point is, in Jesus' kingdom, the standard is not morality, the standard is beauty. And a beautiful life is, obviously, it's not less than a moral life, it's just infinitely more. And a couple of months ago, I came across what I consider to be the best story I have ever found to really illustrate the beautiful life that Jesus calls his followers to. If you were here for our James series, you might have heard this. This is a story about a cellist named uh, Smilovitz, who was in Sarajevo, which is the capital of, of uh, Bosnia. Is a, in the early 90s, it's a place that was... Um, very acquainted with pain and suffering and turmoil and injustice. And this story, it, it, it comes from a book uh, called A Creative Minority, but the story itself is, is uh, based, there's actually a novel written on this, uh, about this guy's life called The, the Cellist of Sarajevo. But I, it, I've not found a story yet that illustrates more powerfully the beautiful life that Jesus calls his followers to. Let me read this to you. It says, On May 28, 1992, 
The principal cellist in the Sarajevo opera dressed in his formal black tails and sat down on a fire-scorched chair in a bomb crater to play Albanoni's Adagio in G minor. The site was outside a bakery in Smilovitz's neighborhood where 22 people waiting in line for bread had been killed the previous day. During the siege of Sarajevo from 1992 to 1995, more than 10,000 people were killed. The citizens lived in constant fear of shelling and snipers while struggling each day to find food and water. Smilovitz lived near one of the few working bakeries where a long line of people had gathered when a shell exploded. He rushed the scene and was overcome with grief at the carnage. Here's how, here's how he responded. For the next 22 days, one for each victim of the bombing, he decided to challenge the ugliness of war with his only weapon, beauty. Known as the cellist of Sarajevo, Smilovitz not only performed outside the bakery, but continued to unleash the beauty of his music in graveyards, at funerals, in the rubble of buildings, and in the sniper-infested streets. I never stopped playing music throughout the siege, he said. My weapon was my cello. Although completely vulnerable, Smilovitz was never shot. It was as if the beauty of his presence repelled the violence of war. His music created an oasis amid the horror. It offered hope to the people of Sarajevo and a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were destroying the city. That's what Jesus is calling his followers to. Not just to, to morally scrupulous lives where we abide by some set of rules, but to beautiful lives that provide hope to people in an otherwise hopeless world and lives that challenge the ugliness and the corruption and the injustice of a world that's been marred by, by sin. That's what it means that followers of Jesus and, and, and the gospel goodness that Jesus creates in us is brighter than religious righteousness. Secondly, according to Jesus' words here, he says that gospel goodness is also deeper than religious righteousness. <clears throat> By this, I'm referring not, not to a Christian's relationship with the world, but with their own heart. In verse 20, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said that, uh, I, I, I can imagine, I think you'd agree, the hearts of his hearers would have sank. Because you probably heard this before, the scribes and the Pharisees made it their full-time job to study and to memorize and to abide by specifically the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and they, not only did they abide by them, but they famously kind of built all of these man-made laws around the laws of God just so that they wouldn't even get close to being considered breaking a law of God. So for Jesus in his breakout sermon to say, you're going to need a righteousness greater than theirs that surpasses theirs if you want to even step foot in the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the first thought people would have come to is that's absolutely impossible. That, that must preclude somebody like me. So it begs the question, what did Jesus mean here? And if you keep reading through the Sermon on the Mount in all of the verses after this, Jesus explains exactly what he means. If you skip ahead to verse 21, 27, 33, 38, 43, over and over again, you'll see Jesus repeats this rhetorical formula. Over and over, he begins new sections of his sermon by saying, you have heard that it was said, and then he quotes an Old Testament law, and then he chases that by saying, but I tell you, and then he basically puts his 
spin on it, which by the time he's done makes it basically impossible for you and I to abide by in and of our own effort. And what Jesus is doing, he, he more or less goes through the Ten Commandments like that, but what he's doing with each one of those laws is he's explaining that while, while people who live a merely religious life are only concerned with external obedience to a law, Jesus is calling his followers uh, to something deeper, something that engages and transforms the heart. I'll just give you three examples of this. You, you probably heard these before, but it's incredibly convicting. Uh, first off, Jesus talks about murder. Uh, it, it, like I said, you, you probably heard this, but Jesus explains that religious people are only concerned with the physical act of murder. And as long as you don't actually do that, you're okay. But Jesus goes infinitely further than that, and he, he says, if, if only in your heart you harbor ill will towards somebody. He says, if you call them, and he uses a word that was common in, in his day, in, in uh, Aramaic, the, it's the word raka, which basically, literally translated to English, it would be like calling somebody nothing. Jesus is saying, if, if only in your heart when you look at somebody else and you refuse to honor their dignity and their value and their worth as somebody created in the image of God, if you show indifference or disdain towards them, if that's all you do, it's no less than if you've murdered them. Regarding sex, Jesus says, you know, religious people are well acquainted with the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus goes so much further than that, and he says that if you so much as objectify another human being in your mind, meaning if you look at, at another human being made in the image of God and you reduce their full personhood into just an object of your sexual pleasure, Jesus, Jesus says, without committing every other part of who you are to that person inside the context of a lifelong commitment known as marriage, if you do that only in fantasy, Jesus said, it is absolutely no different in the eyes of God than if you have committed the act. And when it comes to vengeance and paying back, that's where Jesus says, you probably, you've heard this before, but I wonder if you've misunderstood this because most of my life I did. Jesus says, if, you're, if somebody strikes you on the right side of your face, turn the other cheek. Now, most of my life, I thought that, that what Jesus was basically commanding us to do there is to be a doormat. You know, like, like you get hit on one side of your face, give them the other side of your face so that they can hit that one too. You know, you're not done until you get both, both parts of me kind of thing. That is not at all what Jesus means there. In Jesus' day, when you offered your cheek to someone, that was, you, you did so not so that they would strike it, but so that they would kiss it, which had no romantic connotation whatsoever. It was simply an expression of friendship. So here's what Jesus is saying. When somebody, and would you just please consider how utterly, unless you're just a way better person than me, this is impossible. Jesus is saying when somebody strikes you on the right side of your face, which they're not striking you to hurt you, they're striking you to humiliate you. They're striking you to dishonor you in a shame and honor culture, to rob you of your social standing. Jesus says when someone does that to you, it's not enough to just physically restrain yourself from getting them back for what they did to you. He says, when you turn the other cheek, he's calling you to continue to entertain the possibility of reconciliation and relationship, even with someone who has robbed you of your standing in the community. It's not just enough to restrain yourself from getting them back. Jesus says, my followers are called to treat even the people who have wounded you the most with hope and forgiveness. And if you do oppose them and you do confront them, you are to do so exclusively out of love for them. So here's the point. By the time you get to the end of this section, this is not a joke, you should feel terrible about yourself. 
because no other teacher of ethics has demanded anything near the depth that Jesus requires here. When he says your, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, he's not talking about a surface level, just do more stuff here. He's talking about a depth. He's saying, I'm not interested in just your hands. I'm interested in your heart. And the problem with religion is it can manipulate our hands. It can get us to modify our surface level behavior, but it does not go deep enough to transform a heart. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you've heard that idea before, that religion cannot transform a human heart. Let me, let's take a second here and get a little bit psychological. And I, have you ever asked the question, why? Why can't religion do that? What I'm about to share with you is a thought experiment that somebody put me, put me onto years ago, and it was kind of a light bulb moment for me. And I'll just say, if you're listening to this, and your life has been, if, if you can look back on your past, and if you, if you got real honest with yourself, you would admit that you've kind of been on a roller coaster of behavioral modification, meaning there have been times in your life where you really got tired of doing whatever thing you know you shouldn't do, and so you tried through sheer effort to stop doing it, and for a time you were successful, but then you fell back into it, and you've kind of done that your whole life. Maybe this thought experiment will be an aha moment for you like it was for me. Let's, as a thought experiment, let's just compare a worldly person who breaks all the rules to a religious person who keeps them. All right, the worldly person lies and cheats. The religious person always tells the truth and operates with integrity no matter what. So, so first off, let's ask the question, why does a worldly person lie and cheat? And it boils down to two answers. It's fear and pride, the primary motivators of, of the human heart. In their fear, they're basically either terrified of not getting what they want or losing what they have, and in their pride, they're driven through life with this desire to keep up with the Joneses and outdo everybody else and kind of establish some kind of social dominance. And so, driven by their own fear and pride, they lie and they cheat. Now, a religious person looking on is going to look down at that lying, cheating, filthy sinner because they never do those things. They always tell the truth. But here's the question that religious people almost never get around to asking themselves. Why do they always tell the truth? And the ironic answer is they're driven by the same motivation that drives worldly people to never tell the truth. It all boils down to fear and pride. When it comes to religious people, in their fear, they tell the truth because they're, they're terrified. If I lie, God's going to get me or my pristine reputation is going to fall apart and I'm not going to have you know, a healthy sense of self. Or in their pride, religious people kind of internally have this, even if they never say it out loud, they have this mindset that says, I'm not a liar and I'm not a cheater. I'm better than people who live that way. I'm a good person. So the irony is that religious people are driven to do what they do for the same primary reasons that worldly people are driven to do what they do. And in, in case you're wondering, this, what I'm offering to you, it is the explicit point that Jesus drove home in one of his most famous parables called the parable of the prodigal son. And what Jesus does is he holds up both ways of life and says, what's the difference? If it's driven by the same motivation in the heart, there is none. And that kind of righteousness, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, religious righteousness, according to Jesus, that's just worldliness in a disguise, and it's not even a good disguise. It's a pathetic attempt to, to gain leverage over God and feel superior to other people. That's why it's so shallow. And so what Jesus is calling us to, this way of life that develops gospel goodness, secondly, it's deeper than religious righteousness. But thirdly, and this will be the last idea I put before you today, it's that gospel goodness is also sweeter 
<clears throat> than religious righteousness. And here's what I mean by that. The good news, as, as, as specifically as deflating as the middle section, as the, um, as the um, uh, Sermon on the Mount is, the good news is that when you survey the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus never says that if you live a good enough life, you will get God as a father. Instead, kind of the implication of the Sermon on the Mount is you will only be able to live the life Jesus calls you to if you already know God as your father. That was the point in verse 16 where he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. Jesus is explaining the way you and I can live these kind, this transformed life. It all boils down to knowing that you have God as a father. This is a theme that Jesus returns to over and over throughout this teaching. If you skip ahead a chapter in, in chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says, This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, again, if, if you just take this command, don't worry about your life. Just give that a shot for a week. If you try to do that as a, just if you treat it religiously, if you treat that as, okay, I'm going to do that in my own power, somebody knows what I'm talking about. You're just going to wind up worrying about how much you worry. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. And in the same way, you will find out how much anxiety exists in you when you decide to stop being anxious. And all that will lead to is levels of anxiety. And it is a bitter, miserable way to live. But right after Jesus tells us not to worry, the very next words out of his mouth, he calls us to observe the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field. And he tells us that if our heavenly father takes care of them, then of course he's going to take care of us for one specific reason. He says, because you are so much more valuable to him than plants and animals. And what Jesus is explaining there is is one of the key differences between Christianity as a way of life and mere religion. Because in religion, you obey God and you keep the rules and you try to live this good life all so that you can become valuable. Also that in the hope that that one day you might feel valuable or earn your value. And and that really is the irony when it comes to religion. Because religious people do so many good things. People, things that the Bible says are good. So many things that look selfless, but underneath it all, it's all about them. Religious people do not have an option except to go through life in everything that they do, attempting to get their own needs met, either emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually, which is why the gospel accounts show us over and over this is why religious people are so prone to bitterness and resentment toward God and other people. Religious people have to have other people constantly thanking them and honoring them and recognizing them, and they need to constantly have God answering their prayers and giving them a good life. And the moment that those things dry up, the moment that they stop being recognized by other people or God walks them through some, some time of difficulty, their obedience begins to turn into bitterness because it was never about loving and serving God for God's sake and the sake of others. It was all about getting my needs met. And what Jesus is explaining in his sermon is that his followers, they might do a lot of the same things as, as people living a merely religious lifestyle, but the difference is underneath it, a follower of Jesus does all of those things not to get their needs met, but because their needs have already been met 
by God as their father. And so it's a, it's a way of life that is continually driving out the bitterness and the resentment that so naturally grows in the human heart because it's a way of life that doesn't depend on the response of the people that we serve. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, Sacred Fire, I've, I've quoted this to you a number of times now, but in his book, uh, he said, this really caught my attention. He said, perhaps the greatest religious imperative. I just want to pause you there for a second and think about what, what you think he would say. He walks through it. He says, perhaps the greatest religious imperative of all is to die without being bitter and angry. That's it. Now, that's not the Bible. That's just his opinion, so you can take that or leave it, but I think he's on to something. And I say that to say there's no way for you to deal with, with that bitterness and that anger and that resentment that we all have in our hearts. There's no way to deal with that as a merely religious person only Jesus can smoke that out of us. And the final question I wanted to get at today, I, let me just answer the question, how? If, if this way of life that Jesus is inviting us into, if it depends on you and I, not only knowing God as a father, but learning how to have our needs met in him so that we don't ask everything and everyone else to be and do what only God can be and do for us, how is that way of life possible? How do, we, how do we shift over into this way of life Jesus is calling us into? And the answer is found in chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Prior to this statement, when Jesus says, don't assume I came to destroy, the reason he's saying that, of course, is because he knew that is what people would assume. Prior to Jesus making this statement, people undoubtedly thought that he had an incredibly low view of the law, that he was basically just dumbing down the standard, because what he's saying is that, that sinners, people who have failed to keep God's standard, can have God as a father. But what Jesus is saying here in verse 17, he proves that Christianity actually has a higher view of the law than religion. Because religious people move through life believing that they can earn God's approval and favor and acceptance and they can meet his standard in and of their own power. Whereas a Christian is somebody who realizes that God's standard is so impossibly high, that bar is set so impossibly high that the only hope I have is if someone else met that standard for me. And what Jesus is saying here in verse 17 is that is exactly what he came here to do. When he says that he came to fulfill the law, that, that, that there's basically two sides to this. On the one hand, Jesus is saying that he came here to perfectly keep the law for us, to live the life that you and I know we've not lived. But the other side of that, and this is, is something that I just, I feel like especially with modern people, we, there's just something in us that hates to hear this. The other side of this is Jesus is saying he came here to perfectly pay the price that we should pay. He came to perfectly deal uh, with the debt that hung over us. Now, I, I, I don't know if this is, I'm sure it was offensive in every culture, right? Every culture that the gospel enters into, it challenges people, it confronts people, it offends people. Jesus said that it would. But specifically with modern people, just follow me here for a moment, there's something about telling modern people that there's a price that they owe, that there's a debt that they owe that, that's so high that somebody else needs to come and deliver you. There's just something about that that grates against everything that we're kind of indoctrinated to believe in modern culture because one of the, one of the few things that modern culture drives into us really everywhere we look, when it talks about owing something, 
The only time our culture teaches us that we owe anybody anything is, is when, when we owe it to ourselves, to, to pursue our dreams and to do whatever it takes to make us happy and to follow our heart and, and not let anybody tell us who we are or how we're supposed to live. We see that as, that used to be considered selfish in modern culture, that's considered heroic. So you tell people in this culture that there's a price hanging over them, that there's a debt that they need to pay, which is why they need a savior, and there's something about that that's deeply offensive to us. However, as offensive as it is, Scripture says there's a part of us that knows that it's true. Scripture teaches that every single human heart, and I would just ask you to search yourself and see if you can't see this in yourself, we all know that we can't bear up under scrutiny. We've known that since Genesis chapter 3 when this horrible thing called shame entered the world. We know that we can't, we can't even bear up under the scrutiny of other people, which is why we have so many intimacy issues in our relationships. It's why we burn so many calories misrepresenting who we are to the world and, and trying to control what people can see about us and worrying what other people think of us. We know that we can't bear up under the scrutiny of another human being in a far greater way. Every single human heart knows we can't bear up under the scrutiny of a God who knows everything there is to know about us. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 1 when he says the law has been written on our hearts. That means regardless of what we say we do or don't believe, every single one of us moves through life with this low-level awareness that there is a standard that we have not lived up to. And that's why there's this kind of low-level sense of dread and this constant whisper in the back of our minds that we have not lived up, that we cannot survive scrutiny, and that there is a price to be paid for the life that we've lived. And what Jesus is saying here in verse 17, he's claiming to be able to, do, to, to, be able to do something for you and I that no other founder of any other major belief system even offered to do for us, which is to pay that price for us. And this idea... Finally, and most fundamentally, this is where followers of Jesus and people who are merely religious part ways. Because religious people, they might see Jesus as, as an inspiring figure. They might see Jesus the way that they see Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or all the rest of them. They might see him as this, this great example or this wise prophet. But people who grow in this thing called gospel goodness, people who actually have their lives changed by Jesus, are people who understand that he's infinitely more than an example, infinitely more than a teacher, infinitely more than a prophet. He is our substitute, that he came here to take our place before a holy God to offer us a righteousness we could not earn and to pay a debt that he did not owe so that you and I could come back to God and have him as a father. Let me call the worship team up, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end today with a story. <clears throat> when I was putting this teaching together, one of the things I was worried about was that it was so intellectual, it was so theoretical, I, I, I thought it would be appropriate to end today um, with a story that kind of highlights what I've been trying to offer to you all morning. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to a dinner for a nonprofit uh, in the city by our very own Reggie Perry. The nonprofit organization is called Bringing Hope Home, and it was founded by a man who about 20 years ago lost his wife to cancer. And the explicit focus of the organization is simply to provide financial support for families that are now dealing with what he and his family once dealt with. And the, the evening was amazing. They, they rented the upstairs of a restaurant. Uh, the food was great. They had this raffle with these really impressive items. 
Um, the, the speakers were incredible. Governor, former Governor Larry Hogan was there, who I fi- found out uh, was a cancer survivor. I didn't know that until that evening. And the keynote speaker was a woman who was currently battling cancer herself. And just every odd in the world is stacked against her. She had her, her teenage son in attendance who had just been accepted to college. By the time she was finished speaking, there was not a dry eye in the room. But I say all this to say, as great as the evening was, I felt remarkably out of place basically from the moment I walked in there for two reasons. Uh, number one, I was one of the only guys there who was not wearing a suit, which I don't know if you're anything like me. Man, when I feel underdressed for an event, it just ruins the entire night for me. I was off my game the entire night. But other than that, I looked around the room, and as the evening progressed, I kind of got the sense that everybody else there knew each other, and therefore they all knew that I didn't. And as I've reflected on that, I thought, is that what it's like to church shop? Because that sounds miserable. And I say that to say, all you military couples that move here and have to find a church, I have so much more compassion and grace toward, that was a miserable experience for me, just this one thing. I didn't know a person in the room except for one, Reggie. So at at one point in the evening, the founder of this nonprofit came up to me. Super nice guy, was not being rude at all, but he asked me the question I most feared to be asked, which was basically, who are you and what are you doing here? (laughs) And I was a deer caught in the headlights, and so I offered him the only answer that made any sense to me. I pointed at Reggie and said, I'm with him. (laughs) And what I meant by that was, hey, listen, I know I don't belong here. I don't have any right to be here in and of my own merit. But what I do have is a relationship with somebody who does belong. So I'm asking you to accept me, not because of who I am, but because of who he is. And I say that to say, when you understand that, you are on your way to understanding Christianity. Religion as a lifestyle, I'll just leave you with this, it's all about standing on your own two feet. Uh, religious people go through life, their, their entire approach to life, their entire approach to God is all about my works, my good deeds, my morality, my reputation, my track record, my merit, my everything. A Christian is simply somebody who gives that up because they realize it doesn't work and who comes to God with a posture of heart that says, God, I don't have any right to be a part of your family. I have lived a life that has disregarded you. I've treated you like you don't exist. And nothing would be more just than for you to treat me the way that I've treated you. I know I don't deserve to call you father, but I have a relationship with your son. I know him and he knows me. And so I'm asking you, father, to accept me, not because of who I am or the life that I lived, but because of who Jesus is and the life that he's lived and the amazing promise of the gospel is that when we come to God the Father with that posture of heart, he accepts us and he welcomes us home, not as servants, not as slaves, not as subjects, but as sons and daughters who have a heavenly Father. There is nothing in the universe that will transform a human heart so holistically as that. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the difference between Christianity and religion. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, there's something in every single one of us that despite what we know with our head, our hearts just gravitate back toward a merely religious lifestyle. And it's why we feel so arrogant and superior on the days when when we think we're doing good and so 
just devastated and self-deprecating on the days we realize that we're not. It's because there's just something in us that still tends to move through life according to our merit and our track record instead of yours. But you have, you have made a way for us to escape that miserable way of life and to enter into eternal life. Lord Jesus, please open our eyes this morning to exactly how different your way, the way of Jesus is, than mere religion. Please help us to see you, not just as an example, not just as a teacher, not just as a prophet, but as our substitute who has come to give us a righteousness we could not earn and to pay a debt that he himself did not owe so that we could live a life of brightness, of depth, and of sweetness. It's in the name of Jesus, our substitute, we ask these things. God's people said, amen. Thank you.